Disclaimer for our listeners, this author interview has been previously recorded and some of the events, such as the San Antonio Book Festival, have already passed. Please enjoy the rest of this interview and don't forget to check out some of these authors and their amazing books. Welcome to Bibliotech On Air. Today we have another amazing author interview uh, prepared for you guys. Today we have David Bowles. David Bowles is the amazing author of They Call Me Guero, My Two Border Towns, and Clockwork Curandera. And just a heads up for all you Bibliotech On Air fans, this was a previously recorded interview before we got our new setup. So again, this is just us and our tiny microphone and our dream. So today we have myself, Ruby Gonzalez, and Jesse Garcia interviewing Mr. David Bowles. Hi, hi everyone. Joining us today is an author of dozens of books such as They Call Me Wero and My Two Border Towns. He is a professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande and he has also worked on several TV and film projects such as Victor and Valentino which airs on the Cartoon Network. We are very excited to welcome South Texas native David Bowles. Hey there, how's it going? It's good to be on the program with you. So our first question that we have for you is when did you realize that you wanted to become an author? Wow. Um, yeah. So I grew up in a family of storytellers down here in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, my grandmother, uh, Garza, on my dad's side, and like my tios and tias on my dad's side, were great storytellers. And ever since I was little, they would, you know, kind of keep me entranced with their cuentos. A lot of them kind of like spooky and scary. It's the stuff that I preferred, um, you know. Uh, La Llorona, Las Lechuzas, La Mano Pachona, all the scary stuff that that we all uh, kind of like share in Mexican-American culture to some degree or another. And I was one of those annoying kids that always had questions at the end of the story. Like you're supposed to just be freaked out by the story and like, go to bed or whatever. And I was always like, but then what happens? And then what happens? And uh, one day my grandmother told me, uh, mira, bueno, if you want to know more Uh, If you want to go beyond the stories, if you want more stories, you need to learn to read because that's where you're going to find this stuff is in books. And I don't know to what extent she was just trying to blow me off, like quit asking me a bunch of questions. (laughs) I have nothing else to tell you, Um, but it worked. And I bugged my mom to teach me how to read. And this was like when I was five years old. So I learned to read before I got into kinder. And it really transformed things for me um, and made me fall in love with books as well. I had a couple of really great librarians and teachers along the way who guided me through the stacks and, and pointed me in the right direction. And at some point when I was in like late elementary or early junior high in McAllen, um, I realized that, th- that the two things that I loved, like the stories of my community and my, and my family and the books that I was into, that there's a, there, there had to be a way to bridge the gap. Because I'm 52, so we're talking like the 70s and early 80s, and uh, there weren't really books written by Mexican-Americans or about the Mexican-American community in my libraries or in the classrooms. Um, And so it just kind of really didn't occur to me until I got older that 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 was a problem and that I wanted to fix it. And um, so that kind of like set me on the path to to becoming the writer I am today. It's just that realization and desire to, to do something about it and to marry the two things that I loved. Because I knew I wanted to be a storyteller, but then I also kind of wanted to be a writer based on all the, the, the books I was reading. I wanted to do that. I wanted to make people feel that way about my stories. Um, and uh, the fusion of the two is really what had, you know eventually would launch my career in, um, 
and and add that like special something because you know as an author you're always looking for what's my hook what what makes me different from other authors and, and it, it kind of springs from that you know that's awesome to hear that that response really speaks to me because growing up my uh parents my aunts and uncles always told me stories about uh mexican folklore yeah. uh La Chusa, La Llorona, and as a little kid it it freaked me out but it also made me more curious and i would mm-hmm. have really loved for there to have been more books like geared toward my age about that that would have been awesome yeah totally and so that's one of the things that um that motivated me and i the you know the, the thing that really drove it home was becoming a teacher and uh i was the first person in my family to go to college and studied english became an english teacher and teaching middle school students in uh down in texas where i live now um, I began to realize that for the kids who just weren't interested in like the textbook, the typical novels that are adopted by schools, it's like this, you know, kind of dense old fashioned literature. One of the ways that I could reach them was with those cuentos, just like rewriting them um, in, in short stories and um, adding dialogue and flashbacks and sent, setting them in a particular location a particular time period and they got excited about that stuff and then I showed them how to do it how to create what I called contextualized folk tales um and some of those students and we're talking like you know 20 something years some of the students are still my friends to this day and and like it's a it was a really welcome shared experience that we had that kind of opened our eyes to the possibilities of our own stories in our community um and uh, I hope to see some of them publishing books someday. It would be really fantastic. So that that brings us to our next question. When did you write your first book and how old were you? Wow. So I actually wrote my first book when I was 17. There was a, a, a novel writing contest back in 1987 by Avon Books. They, they published like little paperbacks. Um, and my teacher uh, at PSJA High School in, in FAR, um, knew that I was a really good writer and, and have been trying to encourage that. Um, you know, I, I lived in Section 8 housing, you know, government housing, and I was on food stamps. And and I knew there was a part of me that knew that one of the only ways that I could get out of that was through going into college. And so she'd been encouraging what she saw as my, you know, really kind of advanced love of literature and writing. And so when she saw this uh, novel writing contest in some magazine she was reading, she cut it out and she said, you need to enter this contest. There's only one catch that, you know, it's, it's like two months until the deadline. And so um, she believed in me and, and pushed me. And I wrote a, a short novel, um, a humorous science fiction novel along the lines of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy about this light-skinned Mexican-American boy with an Anglo last name <clears throat> who gets involved in like an alien invasion and stuff like that. And, um, it didn't win. It did not win. Unfortunately, it did not even get like honorable mention, but I had written a book and, and it was like this empowering thing that made me realize, wow, okay, I can do it. And this is again, 1987. My mom had to literally rent a typewriter, an electric typewriter for me to type this thing up. We did not have a computer in the house. Um, and so, yeah, that was definitely the thing that showed me that I could do it. But my first published book wouldn't come out until 2011, many, many, many years later, uh, because I, like I say, I went off on this path of family and community and um, answering the call of being a leader and a teacher in my community and just honed my writing in the classroom, working with students and just getting a better understanding of like what I wanted to write so that by the time it was 
by the time the moment arrived for, for me to try to publish, um, I had a real solid sense of self and voice and so forth. Um, sometimes, you know, I, I, not to knock writers who get started in their 20s, it's fantastic. And I, I, I have so much respect for them. But I think that if, if I had started in my 20s, my career would have been a lot different and maybe not as rewarding to me as what has happened since I first took that detour um, into being a guide to young people and, and being somebody who looked for representation for them in existing material and then created new material in which they could see themselves represented. And um, all of that is informed the work I do both as a writer and as, as an activist. So where do you get your ideas for your books? Wow. So um, this is one of those questions you can imagine we get asked a lot authors do. Um, and for me, my ideas spring from my identity. They spring from who I am and, and the community I grew up in, the things I'm interested in uh, and so forth. And there are like so many ideas. In fact, ideas are not my problem at all. I, I have entirely too many ideas for my own good. Um, I'm a very prolific writer. I usually have a couple of books coming out every year. Um, and uh, like last year, in fact, I had some like 10 books. Coming. It was a, a very, very, uh, maybe not, um, reasonable number of books, but because it's because I do a lot of different things. Like I write for different age groups. I had a picture book and some a chapter books come out and, and a couple of translations and a book for an adult for adults and that. Da, 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 da. So I, I, I write to a huge variety of people. Um, but yeah, ideas, they, they do, they usually come from the intersection of two things that matter to me. Um, and like, it's just, like crossing wires in your brain suddenly there's like this explosion and you're like oh my gosh I know what I want to write and this story that combines like um Aztec culture with um with like uh, something like um green punk or eco punk like hopeful punk uh like science fiction writing about the future um and and then boss you start writing something so um yeah ideas I and I always tell people um, who are aspiring writers, you know, look for the ideas inside of yourself. Think about the things that like you're uniquely prepared to write, that you have the skills and the voice and the experience to write that maybe other people don't and try to tell that unique story. Because unfortunately, a lot of writers, what they initially do, and I even did this, is you want to just like imitate the writers that you love rather than trying to find what's unique about you and the stories that only you can tell. And we're going to go ahead and take a little pause here so we can listen to our ad breaks. Go ahead and stay tuned to hear all about our summer programming. Get your groove on with music makers at Bibliotech West. Play around with some synthesizers and learn how to recreate some of today's most popular songs. Have a jam session or get creative and make your own sick beats. Earn your technology badge too. Held the first and third Thursday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. And now we're back. Thank you for listening. Now we return to your regularly scheduled programming. Is there is there any difference for you in terms of like writing books for children as opposed to writing books for young adults or adults? Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's very different. Um, every time I like change uh, age level or genre because I've, I've, I'm now also writing graphic novels and I've written scripts for like tv and movies and 
every single one of these is a completely new experience. And so you, I mean, you build upon the tools that you already have, but you have to make adjustments and you have to learn to like, when you're writing for children, you have to ease back on certain things and, and foreground other things. Um, and it, it, you know, I, I encounter people all the time who are like, Oh, I have an idea for a children's book. I think I could write this book. I think it would be really popular. Um, and I asked them, okay, so what other children's books is it like? Like what other things have you read that you could associate it with it? Because that'll help you to find an agent. And then people will be like, oh, well, I don't read children's books. And I'm like, how can you write a children's book if you don't read one? Um, it's like this weird thing. Like I'm going to play basketball, even though I've never watched a game of basketball in my life. How hard can it be? You just dribble the ball and throw it in the basket. And you're like, no, my God, what are you doing? Um, and so there is this idea that writing children's books has got to be easy because you're writing for children, but it's actually very, very hard because you've got to squeeze down the essence of what you're trying to communicate into words that are both um, elegant and pretty, but also understandable for young people um, and very few words as well. And you can't just, it's not like telling a story to a kid writing a book for a kid is different than telling a story to a kid and so a lot of people assume that because they can entertain kids with goofy stories that they can write a children's book and it, it it requires a lot of skills and you have to work at it you have to to read lots of children's books and practice and and have people help you out and maybe take classes in it um, to get to get there so like for the, and that's true of everything um i i would, would be honest with you it's probably easier for me to write ya because it's um, just it's something that I've written a lot and it's a lot closer to adult perspective um, and you can be a lot more frank with your language and so forth. Um, and writing for, for younger children definitely requires a lot more um, flexibility and introspection and, and you can't necessarily go with your instincts as much as you have to like think things out carefully and, and put it all together. That's a long-winded answer to your question, but hopefully it helps. <laughs> no, oh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. Very interesting. What was the most surprising things that you learned in creating your books? Well, I mean, one of the things, because of the kind of work that I do, I end up doing a lot of research. Um, some of it is research that I'm doing not necessarily thinking about writing a book. And so sometimes the research leads to the book. Um, you know, I've spent... Uh, a decade studying the uh, the indigenous language Nahuatl, which was spoken by the Aztecs before the Spanish invasion, and is still spoken by uh, 1.5 million um, people in Mexico and Central America uh, to to this day. Um, and so that I could read, you know, texts that were written in Nahuatl right after the invasion, colonial era texts, and um, it's part of my fascination with the roots of the Rio Grande Valley, the roots of Mexican-American border culture in Mexico, and the roots of that in pre-Columbian Mesoamerica. And, and so a lot of that research just over, over the years um, equips me to be able to, um, you know, write books that are, that draw from that or embed in that or retell stories from that epic. Um, but also sometimes you'll be, um, writing something new and you have to go back and do research to fill in gaps and things that you don't know, whatever. And so, you know, I, I discovered a lot of fascinating things about the region that I have grown up in my entire life, for example. Um, uh, just to, to throw an example out there, um, a, a friend of mine, Guadalupe Garcia McCall, um, and I have 
co-written two books together that are going to be coming out, one next year and one the following year. Um, they're YA novels. And we're brainstorming ideas for a third novel. Um, and we, we knew we wanted to set it on the border in the present day. And we wanted to have something to do with vampires. And so I, I knew that there were um, like vampires in Aztec tradition and, and, and Tlaxcala tradition. And to this day, they're still in the state of, of, of Tlaxcala. There's still um, vampires talked about in some of the, the rural areas. And so in like doing research about how I could take vampires from that area and make them be on the border, um, I discovered something that I just never had known, which was that when Escandon came in 1749 um, with groups of colonizers from Saltillo, a couple dozen families, to found Laredo and Reynosa and Camargo and Mier and like all these little towns along the border. He also brought with him a bunch of Tlaxcalteca families that were living in the city right next to Saltillo. They, they, these were indigenous people, Nahuas, but they were Catholics. They were the allies of the Spanish during the, the invasion of Mexico and had helped to defeat the Aztec empire. Um, and and uh, in the 1500s, they'd been asked to found a city right next to Saltillo so they could help like deal with indigenous people in that area and help the, the, the Spanish conquer the area. And so these Tlaxcalteca families came to the border and then over the years, like just blended in with the mestizo people that had come from Saltillo. And so understanding that helped me to understand, you know, why like novelty words are prominent even in the Rio Grande Valley and San Antonio, stuff like that. Like we words we don't even realize are, are from that language but that are um, and why the traditions of those people, of Nahuatl peoples, uh, because a lot of these things, um, La Llorona, Las Lechuzas, th these are actually indigenous stories that have made their way into Mexican American culture. And so discovering all that, it's like, wow, you know, there were like indigenous people, because obviously there were already indigenous people here, the Cuauhtecos um, living in this area, but indigenous people from deeper in Mexico had also come to this area to help deal with them. Um, and and that like, it really helped the story, but it also helped me to have a new perspective on the rich um, cultural history of, of South Texas. And, and so that's an example of the kind of stuff that can happen. You just, you go down these rabbit holes and you come out going, oh my God, I know all these new things that I would have never suspected before. It's so cool. Yeah, that's awesome to me. I'm not a, I'm not a writer, but I think if I was a writer, one of the parts that I would like the best would just be the research and learning about history and stuff like that. That would be awesome. Absolutely. It's so cool. I mean, it's also dangerous because you, you're like, I've got a deadline, uh, but you know, by the five o'clock today, and I need to do a little bit of research just to finish this chapter off. And then like two hours later, you're like, oh my God, I need to, I've wasted <laughs> two hours on research. And now I need to write frantically. So uh, it, it is, I mean, you can disappear down that rabbit hole for a very long time before coming out. So you, you've got to, yeah, I, I like to put like little alarms and little alerts on my Google calendar stuff. So that will, it'll yank me out. You've got an hour to research and then get out of that research, buddy. <laughs> I guess I can escribiendo. Ya dejate de tus tonterías and, and move on. And so yeah. Yeah, that's what ends up happening. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I'd like to I'd like to pivot a little bit and ask you about um, the hashtag Dignidad Literaria. Uh -huh. um, I really think that the concept is awesome. And I just uh, if you can speak on some of the work that you've done for that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I kind of hinted at this earlier when I was talking about how difficult it was to be a kid and a teenager um, 
in primarily Mexican-American schools with lots of Mexican-American teachers and not have Latinx literature, not have Mexican-American literature in the 70s and 80s. And unfortunately, even though there's been progress, especially like in the last 15 years, there's been some really significant progress, uh, we're still way far away from being where we need to do to be like 3,500 books are published every year for kids. And of those 3,500 books that are published for kids every year, like only 25% of them feature children from communities of color. When children from communities of color actually make up 50% of the school age population. Um, and of those 25%, only about half of them are actually written by people from those communities and the rest are written by like white authors writing about characters from these other communities. Um, and it used to be that it was only like 10% and, and half of that was were by like what we call authentic voices or, or own voices. And um, so seeing that this was a problem and then seeing how publishing it was so willing to invest millions of dollars in advances and PR and so forth to promote a book like American Dirt, which came out at the end of uh, 2019, beginning of 2020. That was about the, the crisis, the, the, you know, the, the crisis of um, asylum seekers from Central America and Mexico coming to the U.S. border, um, written by somebody who was not from Mexico or Central America or from the U.S. Southwest, um, not from any really of those Latinos communities that were grappling with this, even though there were books being published or and being written by people that are, were involved in that. And, and to see that person be advanced so much money and for Oprah Winfrey and like everybody in publishing to like just push hard to make that book the book about the immigrant experience was just really disheartening. Not because the author in question didn't have the right to write the book, of course she does. Everybody has the right to write about what they want to write about and to try to get it sold and to try to get people to read it. That's, you know, it's, it's kind of getting a chance to some degree, but you have the right to do it. But the, the fact that, mm, that people from outside of the community are the ones who are elevated um, and given all the money to talk about the community is, is kind of gross. Um, and it is, it shows a real lack of respect for people in the community and it's something that's been going on for you know the hundred years or so that there's been big publishing in this country um latinx people black people asian american people indigenous people have been systematically and systemically excluded from publishing and so we the some of us some of us who are being kind of critical of american dirt and um, the, the publishing company Macmillan and the imprint of Macmillan Flatiron that published the book and also publishes um, Oprah's books were, you know, we reached a point where we wanted to pivot away from a conversation about that particular book and that particular author and to talk to publishers about what they need to be doing to improve the literary dignity of all of these marginalized groups in this, in this nation, right? Specifically Latinx people. Um, and so we reached out to them and said, hey, you know what? Let's stop talking about American dirt and let's have a conversation about equity and dignity. And they were, they were down for it. And they, so they, they asked us to fly up to New York City. And this was like right when COVID was just beginning. We were beginning to hear about it in the news and they had put some planes in a quarantine um, that were coming from Europe and, and from China. And we sat down with them for a couple of hours. And at the end of that meeting, even though 
and going into the meeting, they were like, we don't want to make any decisions today. We got them to agree to three things, to agree that there was a problem, to agree that they would come up with a plan to address the problem and to improve um, Latinx representation in the books they acquired and in the editors that they hired. And then that they would give us a, that they would do that within 90 days and they would give us a report within 30 days. And so it was a, you know, it was a, a nice victory. Um, the COVID hit and, and stymied some of those plans, but you know, we're still working with uh, groups like the, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and Joaquin Castro and, um, and other uh, groups and individuals to, to hold big publishing's feet to the fire and, and insist that they do a better job. Because when you think about all the books being published, not just for children, but also for adults, only about 2% of books published every year are written by Latinx people when we make up 20% of the population. So yeah, there's like a major disconnect and, you know, parity and equity need to become a priority for people. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of misconception about what Latinx people will consume, whether we read books, whether we go to the movies and all, that. And all of it is just like a smokescreen because clearly we buy books and clearly we go to the movies. We are what we have, we're one of the demographics with like the largest purchasing power and entertainment because we consume a lot of entertainment. Um, and when you look at the, the the numbers of our consumption versus our representation, it's pretty gross, and uh, it's something that that needs to be amended. And, and so that that fight, I think, is really really important. Um, and just the the notion of the right of a community to its own literary dignity, to dignidad literaria, which is where the hashtag came from, right? That's what that's what we started using on Twitter, but it got everybody's attention. Um, is you know for their for them to have control over their story. Again, other people can write stories about other groups and that's fine, but to some degree, just for the sake of the dignity of the community, the majority of voices talking about a community need to come from that community, right? Even if other voices, allies and so forth are also telling the stories. Um, if, the, if out in the forefront is not the voices of that community, then there's a major problem. Um, it, it, it's, it's a bit of a battle and we, we are, you know, seeing setbacks all the time with like book banning and so forth. Uh, but it's a battle that's worth fighting. Wow, that's awesome. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Thanks for all the work um, that you and your colleagues do with that. At, at Bibliotech, it's kind of our mantra as well to um, bridge that digital divide. A lot of the people in our surrounding communities don't have access to internet and, and uh, devices. But, you know, it's interesting to hear about control over your literary dignity. And I think that that's, I think that that's awesome, the work that y'all are doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saying that, Jesse. Yeah, for sure. And we will be back after these messages. If you listen to our podcasts, then you know that we have amazing staff who know how to speak all sorts of languages. If you want to take those first steps into learning a new language, then check out Mango Languages, where you can choose from almost any language and learn as fast or as slow as you want. Available with your Bibliotech account today. And now we're back. All right. So, uh, David, the last question I had, uh, just wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about, about the book that you're going to be reading at the uh, Book Fest on the 21st. Yes. So, um, I'm trying to remember. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies. I know it sounds like really sangron, really arrogant, but like it's, I go to so many different events. I'm like, okay, what book am I talking about? And I have so many <laughs> books. So um, I know that um, one of the, the, the main focuses that 
we have um, in San Antonio um, at the San Antonio Book Festival is the book, um, The Witch Owl Parliament. I just have the, the Spanish versions here sitting next to me, but it's the first in our series, uh, Clockwork Curandera, um, which in Spanish is Curandera Mecanica. Um, and it is a graphic novel um, that's set in an alternate 1865 where um, South Texas and Northern Mexico are a republic on their own called the Republic of Santander. Anybody knows anything about the history of the area will recognize that Nuevo Santander was one of the provinces of New Spain. And this is an alternate world where steampunk technology like um, you know, steam driven robots with like, you know, card readers for brains and just all that really cool steampunk um, technology exists alongside indigenous and mestizo magic. Um, and the, the, the series was co-created by uh, me and Raul III, Raul Gonzalez, who's a great illustrator. Um, and he's the illustrator on this first volume. And uh, the main character is uh, Cristina Franco. She is this apprentice curandera, a 17-year-old girl who gets attacked by lechuzas, interestingly enough, and left for dead um, with, her, with her arm, her right arm and her uh, two legs severed. And her brother, who's an alchemist, brings her back to life by giving her automaton limbs, like basically making her a cyborg, right? Hence the, the whole... Uh, clockwork curandera and um she has to along with her brother and um her and their friend uh discover why these lechuzas are attacking santander um and what they want what, what are they trying to accomplish and there's all these weird things that are going on you've got um people disappearing a lot of refugees come to santander and there are a lot of indigenous people living in the area as well and they're disappearing and and so part of the mystery, which isn't resolved completely in the first book, is like what's going on. And you can see that the art style is really unique. Um, what Raul wanted to do was to, um, to capture the feel of the kinds of illustrations in broadsheet um, newspapers, those one-page broadsheet newspapers in Mexico in the early 1900s. Um, where you know they would have like block prints of uh, illustrations with like just some spot color on them, if any at all. And so it, he wanted it to feel like it could have been created in the past and some other time. And um, the, the book is, um, you know, doing really well. Um, a lot of people are really responding really well to it. It was just uh, named a finalist for the Locus Awards in the category of illustrated book. Locus Awards kind of being like, they're like a science and science fiction and fantasy award akin to like what's given out by the American Library Association or like the Hugos or whatever. Um, and it's on a couple other lists and has been um, named by the Texas Library Association to a couple of their graphic novel and, and novel lists. So people are responding well to it. It's, it's like this, this unique worldview because people like clockwork stuff. Uh, this whole steampunk technology and it's but it's usually set in like London right or somewhere in Europe and we we're all like what would it be like if it were in South Texas what, what would that look like South Texas of the 1800s and um, so yeah it's got this interesting aesthetic a really cool storyline um, lots of um, it's a queer and indigenous rep as well as like just the equivalent in that universe to Mexican-American I mean there's they're from this this plate this Republic of Santander, and they don't see themselves as Mexican, but they are mestizo. So um, it is a, a lot. It was a lot of fun putting together. And the next two books in the series will be coming out 
um, in the next two years. And I think that people will, will really dig the direction it's going in. And I'm hoping that a lot of teens um, will find, you know, lots of lots to enjoy in both the representation and then just like the cool adventure. There's just a lot of adventure. Um, she is kind of like a superhero. Um, and part of that comes from like growing up, both Raul and I grew up with curanderas in our family and curanderas around us in our, in our um, community. Um, in fact, some of his aunts are curanderas still in Juarez uh, across from El Paso. Uh, and we both always saw them as like superheroes because they, they, they had like almost magical abilities, it seemed, to be able to help people with their problems, both physical and mental and like spiritual as well. And uh, I, there, you know, there was a point in my life when I was a kid reading superhero comics and historietas from Mexico, like Caliman and so forth, that I was just like, you know, wow, wouldn't it be cool for there to be a, a superhero as a curandera? Especially when I read um, Battle Angel Alida when that first came out um, in, in the US in the translated version. Um, and so it took many, many years for those ideas to congeal into like a real thing, but now it's out there and uh, I think that people will really like it. Um, um, and then, you know, my, the other major project that I have that uh, people might be interested in is my two border towns, uh, which is one of much awards. Again, I just have, for some reason, I just have Spanish versions of books sitting here on my desk. I don't know what's going on. Um, I've been doing a lot of translating recently. And so, and my two border towns is uh, uh, doing really well. Um, and it's my first picture book. It's really great to write a story that both celebrates how cool it is to grow up a fronterizo and have family on both sides of the border and be able to go back and forth but how that's complicated for kids when they see asylum seekers and refugees like caught between the two worlds, I mean, between the two countries based on the policies of those two countries. And um, it's something that's near and dear to my heart. And I wanted to, to use the eyes of a child to remind us how important our humanity is. So that's the thrust of that book. Well, thank you very much for telling us about the books. I know for, for me personally, the idea of a steampunk world, steampunk story set in 1800 South Texas sounds amazing to me. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun to write. And, and each one of the um, those graphic novels also has like a prequel short story. So I, we, we try to like fill it chock full with just lots and lots of really cool things. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, yeah, totally check it out. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, we definitely will. I know, I know one of our coworkers, uh, we do programmings, and she was even just recently talking about that she wants to start a book club, team book club that star uh, queer um, characters in the books. So yours, I mean, I feel like she's definitely going to be using that as a resource for her book club. Super cool, super cool. Tell her to reach out to me if she ever needs anything. Oh, yeah, definitely. Awesome. <laughs> Well, thank you for joining us, David. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you about your uh, your history, the books that you've written, some of the some of the programs that you're writing about. So, thank you very much. Yep. See you then. Bye, y'all. All right. Thank, thank you. you Bye. And that brings us to an end on today's episode. I just want to once again uh, thank Mr. David Bowles for taking the time to interview with us, and I hope to hear from you soon. And I just want to thank all of our Bibliotech on Air listeners. Keep coming back for more. We have more author interviews coming soon, so stay tuned.